0: Ephesians 4 and let's start in verse 17 and we'll read through the end of the chapter and the beginning of chapter 5. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put aside, putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lord, we we tremble at your word. We tremble at the holiness of who you are and all that you have done to redeem us. Lord, these words are meant to give us life this morning. These words are meant to encourage us this morning. These words are meant to inspire us this morning. These words are meant to convict us this morning. These words are meant to give us hope this morning. May they do just that and father as we study you speaking to your church this morning we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and lord please help me to be a faithful minister and preacher of your word in jesus name amen just by way of uh encouragement if you um if you want a great summary of the book of ephesians the song that we sang this morning come praise and glorify is taken directly from the book of ephesians i know of no better summary you could preach that song it's that good um If you ever wanted just a summary of what Ephesians is about, that that song is it. Over the past months, we've studied this letter from Paul, this letter to the Ephesian church, and a letter that is considered the most significant New Testament writings in regards to the church. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a, a commentator, a theologian, calls it the Queen of the Epistles. And John Mackey, former president of Princeton University, stated to this book, I owe my life. John Calvin said it was his most favorite book. The doctrinal foundations that we've studied in Ephesians, in chapters 1 through 3, are biblical truths that as a church, as an individual, we should visit again and again and again. But Paul doesn't leave the reader with just the first three chapters with just biblical knowledge. He wisely moves into chapters 4 through 6 into ethical behavior because these biblical truths must be given expression in how we live together and how we live before Christ. These biblical truths that we have studied about what God has done, who we are in Christ, how he has united the church by his spirit, how he has brought together those who were once enemies and now are reconciled into the family of God. He now gives us clear standards, ethical behavior on how we are to live together as his church, first and foremost grounded in theological moorings theological truths that we are to be anchored in the truth of the gospel before we move into the ethical behavior of the gospel there is a danger that as we do move into chapters four through six our focus can become primarily one of moralism and behavior and we lose what we learned in chapters one through three And as we immerse ourselves in Paul's exhortations and commands, we can't lose sight of the greater context of theological truth as we strive to obey our Savior. Otherwise, we've taken out of context that truth. There's a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote during the Civil War. As the Civil War was was just kicking off, to a man named Horace Greeley. And if you just pulled one section out of that letter, you would have a picture of Abraham Lincoln that would literally cause you to reel backwards. Lincoln writes this in his letter If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. That's in his letter. And that would make you think Abraham Lincoln wasn't for abolishing slavery. That's what he wrote in this letter. But if you read the rest of the letter, you begin to get the bigger picture. He writes, My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union. And it is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could do, do about slavery because I believe it helped save the Union, I would, I would do what I need to do. His primary objective was to save the Union. Now he was. He was for abolishing slavery. But in the letter to this one individual, the context in which he writes, if you just pull that one verse out, that one, that one line out, you would think he, he's a slaver. And he wasn't. And in the same way, if we just pull out what we just read this morning in verses 25 through 32 about not stealing and no corrupting talk and... All the things that Paul lists here. Not being angry. Not letting the sun go down on our anger. And putting off and putting on. The temptation is to, apart from the rest of the letter, to become moralistic. And behavior driven. And to miss the importance that all that we are asked to do. All that we are commanded to do. Comes from our understanding and our application of the gospel. That transforming grace, the transforming grace of the gospel is what is anchoring how we live. All the things that we do. Becoming a Christian involves radical change. You can't Deny that and you can't move from it. But that change is only possible in and through Jesus Christ. And because of his love for us, Jesus has provided unstoppable, all-powerful, transforming grace so that we can live for him. That's what Paul is after in this passage. Because we've been transformed by grace and truth, we can and should live in obedience to Christ. Because we have been transformed by grace and truth, we can and should live in obedience to Christ. So three simple points this morning. Transforming grace enables us to live for Christ and the good of his church. Transforming grace reminds us of who we are in Christ. And thirdly, transforming grace enables us to be like Christ. The first one, transforming grace enables us to live for Christ and his church. This is the meat of the section here in verses 25 through 32. Paul gives us a number of ways which he commands us to both live and to not live. Though the way we're to maintain the unity of the church. And that is what's behind Paul's writing. That from verse 1 all the way to the very chapter 1, to the end of chapter 6, all of Paul's theological teaching, all of his behavior, his commands about how we're... To ethically live are all about Christ and the church who we are in Christ what Jesus has done in us and what Jesus is doing for us and this transforming grace that is working in us daily this powerful unstoppable transforming grace for the purpose of God's church being built and united on earth so that as we read in chapter five a little bit later It represents, as marriage does, this wonderful relationship representing Christ in the church. We represent God to the world. We represent the truth of who God is. We represent the love of Christ as demonstrated in the church. This is about people being united and how certain behaviors can create division and destruction in a local church. Grace not only renews us, but it empowers us to live for God. And in verses 17 through 24, which we talked about last week, Paul describes the process by which we grow in holiness. We're called to put off and we're called to put on. In a sense, a put off and a put on of clothing. It would be wise for me if every time I went shopping for clothes, I took Marilyn with me. Sadly, I do not do that. And I go and I shop, and I think, that looks great. And there are certain colors I really like. I think orange is a super color. And I bring home clothes, and I put them on, and Marilyn kind of goes... And at times she's actually said, you look like death warmed over in that outfit. (laughs) Don't wear that. And then I have to take it back and I have to take her her with me and of course she picks out clothes I don't like. Our old ways of living are like grave clothes to us. What we're putting off are grave clothes. The old ways that we lived. And we have new clothes to put on through Christ's righteousness. And in verses 25 through 32, Paul provides an example of what the old clothes look like and the new clothes look like. There's a wardrobe change now. You're now starting to dress up a little bit. This would have been 50 years ago. Th- this would have been really understood well because everybody, all the men in here would have been in suits and all the, the ladies in here would be in full dresses and hats and, and, and now everybody's wearing blue jeans and so it doesn't quite have the same impact. But Paul's really not talking about clothes here. He's talking about a manner of life. He's talking about the filthy rags that we wore that were called sin. And so in verse 25, Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now as we go through each of these put-offs and put-on, what you'll notice is there's Paul gives us the negative he gives us the positive, And then he wisely connects us once again theologically to who we are. There's a, there's a cause here. There's a reason why we're to put off and put on. And here he says, therefore, having put away falsehood. In other words, stop lying. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And here's the theological reason. For we are members one to another. We are members of one another. And he wants us to grasp the idea that deceit and lying, misleading statements, untruths... ...create disunity in the church of Christ. Now in verse 15 of this chapter, when Paul says, Speaking the truth in love... There he is speaking, when he's speaking about truth, he's referring to the gospel, what we talked about. Speaking the gospel to one another. But here, when he's talking about, let each one of you speak the truth, he's referring specifically to honest speech, to not speaking falsehoods to one another, to being honest in our speech, to having integrity Behind our words. That our yes is yes. Our no is no. That when somebody has a conversation with you. They can walk away with no concern. About what's been shared. Because it is truth. It's godly truth. It's uplifting truth. And as we learn later on in this, in this chapter. In this, this section. It's truth. It's words that. Do not corrupt. It's words that do not undermine relationships, and so he he ties us wisely to transforming grace, enables us to live for Christ because we can put away falsehood. We can stop lying, and there there's. It's not just big lies. I I don't know where the term "white lie" came from, as though there are the right lies and the bad. I mean, it's just lying. And, and euphemisms for our speech. Well, I was just exaggerating. No, you weren't. You were lying. For us to function together as the church of Christ, for us to obey the commands of Scripture and live in this transforming grace, the first thing that Paul teaches us to do is to put off lying we are members of one another and and false conversation false words lying separates the body and it causes great pain and it causes us to lose sight of the gospel because our savior said i, I am the way the truth and the life jesus is the embodiment of truth and we are his bride and he is the head of our church. And if the head is the embodiment of truth, should not the church be the embodiment of truth? And then he moves on to verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. I can't imagine how many times that passage has been misused to justify anger. Now there is an anger that is not sinful. It is possible to be angry and not sin. There is a place for righteous anger when you see God's reputation maligned, when you see injustice, when you see horrific crimes. There is a righteous indignation that is appropriate to evil. But we live in a fallen world. In unredeemed bodies. And Paul is aware of how easily our righteous anger can quickly become unrighteous. If our anger is not free from injured pride or malice or desire for revenge, it degenerates into sin. And oftentimes we have this deep, anger emotion because somebody has wronged us and we give vent to it because we can quote a passage well I am angry and I'm sinning not when in reality it's just simply not true and I think yes we can be angry and do not sin but I would contend with you that that is the more the exception rather than the rule And that we need to guard our hearts. And it is an appropriate warning for us to not let the sun go down on anger. If it is righteous anger. I think Paul's basically saying get rid of it. Do not hang on to it. His command to not let the sun go down on our anger is in a sense a preemptive strike. Against the disunity that anger can create among us. I've been, in, I've been a pastor for 31 years. I've been in church life for more than that. And I have seen how quickly anger can create disunity, how it can just degenerate into sides and people and gossip and slander. And Paul just says, no, do not let that happen. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And we need to be careful that we don't, take this to an, a, a literal extreme. This time of year in Greenland, if you live in Greenland, the sun does not go down until sometime in August. The sun remains 24 hours. So I'm moving to Greenland so I can be angry until August. August. Now, what Paul is after there, his intention is to warn us against nursing anger. How often do you nurse anger? How often do you just hang on? And it doesn't have to be this explosive temper, let it all out anger. It's just kind of this low-grade ticked off. And you're you're angry at a certain individual. And do you find ways to express that anger subtly and quietly? They walk in the room and you just turn around and walk the other way. They say something and you have a just the right words. Paul is saying do not let the sun go down on your anger do not nurse anger it is if it festers it's a recipe for bitterness and dissension and malice and disaster anger will destroy our unity it will The warning is the theological warning here. The negative, the positive. Here's the negative. And give no opportunity to the devil. There's that theological, hey, listen, here's the reason. Here's the cause why you're not to nurse anger. Why you're not to let anger be all consuming and, and not address it. Because it gives the devil an opportunity. What is the devil's Goal. It's to seek and to kill and destroy. It's to divide. And scripture says that when we do let the sun go down on our anger, when we nurse anger, when we are angry and sin, it gives the devil an opportunity. It's not just an opportunity for the flesh, it's the opportunity for the devil. Those are sobering words that as Christians our relationship is with the heavenly father the one who is holy and pure and he has put his spirit in us he has sealed us by his spirit for the day of redemption and he dwells among his people and in that dwelling we can give the devil an opportunity to work among us And so, Paul says, put off anger. Put on humility. Put on forgiveness. And then he moves on in verse 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather... Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The negative is put off. Don't steal any longer. Now back then stealing was very clearly the taking of someone else's property. And that applies for us today. But we can steal in other ways as well. Whether it's cheating on a tax return, misusing coupons, or taking advantage of things that we should not be taking advantage of. I mean, it's just little things. But Paul's admonition, his command is... Put away stealing and work, do labor, do honest labor with your own hands. And he says, so that the purpose of this, the the put on, the the positive, the command to, to not steal and to work hard and do honest labor is this wonderful reason, so that he says, what? You may have something to share. With anyone in need. And you know, I I read that and I see behind that, it's not just I have earned something. I see that as I have been faithful to work with my own hands, to do honest labor, it's the Lord who is my provider and gives me an abundance to share with those who might have a need. And then he moves on to put off grieving the Holy Spirit. And I think this is probably the most sobering section here. Or, sorry, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There is, this is, this is the area where it can often be I think the most difficult, that negative, corrupting speech, uh, the, the word behind corruption is literally rotten fruit. That your speech is like rotten fruit. It stinks. It's perverse. It's coarse jesting. These are, these are hard and sober words that, that Paul is, is saying. Listen, transforming grace... It's something to celebrate, but it's also something to obey. It's how we're to live and to have corrupting speech. Again, it refers back to the unity of the church. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up. You remember earlier that Paul writes that we are to build ourselves up in love. And he's speaking about the local church. but we're to give speech that is grace-filled, that fits the occasion, that it gives grace to those who hear. In verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's possible to hurt God. It's possible. Grief is an emotion. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's possible by falsehood and anger and stealing and corrupting talk to grieve the Holy Spirit, to grieve the Holy Spirit because those things create disunity and the Holy Spirit came to unify I mean, The the Trinity is in view here. It's one God, three persons, each fully God in unity. And that's what the Holy Spirit is working in us. He is working in us that we would be worthy of the calling to which we have been called that we might eagerly maintain the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 31, 32, Paul kind of summarizes a lot of this by saying, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put off. Put off. Transforming grace. Grace has given you the ability to put off. The curse of sin no longer holds you down. Romans 6, Paul writes that you are no longer a slave of sin, but you are a slave of righteousness. And so put off these things of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the gospel, as God in Christ forgave you. Transforming grace enables us to live for Christ. Transforming grace enables us to live for Christ. To put off old clothes, grave clothes, filthy clothes. And to put on the righteousness of God in Christ. Which ultimately works for his glory and the, and the unity and good of our church. Secondly, transforming grace reminds us of who we are in Christ. I love, Paul goes on in in chapter 5 of verse 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Transforming grace has made you a child of God, you're adopted. Paul writes about that in Ephesians 1, that we have been adopted. We have been made children of God, sons and daughters. Even when we are tempted in these ways, when we, are, we do struggle with anger, or we do struggle with, with lying, or we do struggle with honesty in our, in our labor, or we do struggle with our speech, We can be tempted towards bitterness. These are realities in the life of a believer. But we are not under the curse of sin. We've been transformed by the grace of the gospel. And more importantly, we're not the people we used to be. We're children of God. When when Paul writes, be imitators of God as beloved children, he's not just calling you children. He's calling us Loved, beloved children. You are loved. When the commands of God are sometimes hard to follow, you can think back to this transforming grace that says to you, you are a loved child of God. And there are oftentimes we don't feel loved. We're more aware of our sin than we are of the love and grace of God. Sin weighs us down and it discourages us. And Paul just gives us wonderful truth. Grace has transformed you. And you're not wearing these filthy clothes anymore. This is how you can live and you are my child. It's nice to know growing up my My dad is is pretty short and my younger brother is not much taller, nor is my older brother, and I don't look like my younger brother and I don't look like my older brother and I don't look like my dad and I don't look like my mom and so I decided that when I was about six years, seven years old I was adopted. And so for years I have told my mom, I'm adopted. And my mom would say, No, no, you are not adopted and and then my I'd hear stories and my mom conceived when um, my dad was in the Navy. He was out at sea for six months. And when he got home from out of sea, and my, my mom said that she was pregnant with me. My dad said, well, if you are, he's not mine. And he was kidding. He had, he, he had been home one week, and that's the week my mom said she conceived. I still think I'm adopted. And I've told my parents, I said, look, if you just tell me who my real dad is, if he's rich, I'll share it with you. It's just... <laughs> We can we can share the spoils, and I and I carried that for a long long time, and I still kid my dad to this day that I'm adopted um, because I don't look like either of my brothers and I don't look like my dad. um, I really do want to know who my real dad is because if he is rich, I want to talk with him. But you know, knowing the truth is that I'm not adopted and I do have a birth certificate and. There's just something that creates a peace. I know who my dad is. I know I, I who my mom is. I know whose family I'm a part of. And God wants us to experience that same peace. You know you're his son. You know you're his daughter. You are his child. And yeah, you are adopted. But... In God's economy, when you are adopted, you're His. And you're never let go. You're never returned. No, you cannot return children that you have. And I just, I just love that passage that tells us that because of transforming grace, who I am in Christ, it's because I'm a child of God. I am adopted by Him. And it's precisely because we are his children. We can obey him. We can maintain unity in our church. We can do the things God has called us to do. It's precisely because we're his children we can avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. It's precisely because we're his children that we can forgive like him. It's precisely we're his children that we can do what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5. We can imitate God. We can be like God. And that's where Number three, transforming grace enables us to be like Christ. Paul ends this section with a description of grace that is the pinnacle of all we strive for. Verse two, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to walk in love as Christ has loved us. We are to be willing to sacrifice ourselves for one another as Christ sacrificed ourselves. We're, we're desirous. We want to be desirous to be an offering, a fragrant offering. Basically, I mean, it's just, it's, it's to smell good before Christ. Smell good. Old dirty, filthy grave clothes stink. That was one of the comments made when Lazarus came forth. He's going to stink. That's what grave clothes do. But new clothes, clothes of righteousness, they're a fragrant offering. And when you obey the Lord, when transforming grace is empowering you and encouraging you and inspiring you to do these things, to speak with grace, to not steal, to speak truth to one another, to not be angry, to not clamor and have malice towards one another, but to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, you are a fragrant offering to God. You smell good. The model and ground for living this life is rooted in this. Verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us. As Christ gave himself up for us. Because he was a fragrant offering and he was a sacrifice to God. The application is, I think, pretty simple for us this morning. First and foremost, see the gospel. See the gospel before you see the commands. Paul spends three chapters helping you to see the gospel. Chapter one, you are chosen by God, predestined to be adopted as sons. Redeemed and forgiven of your sins. Chapter 2 No longer dead in sins, no longer dead in your trespasses, but made alive together in Christ. Paul wants you to see the gospel before you see the commands. Because if you see the gospel before you see the commands, there's transforming grace and power to obey the commands. And secondly, not only should we see the gospel, but here is, I think, in a sense, the pinnacle of this section we've been reading. Imitate God. Live to imitate God. Live to be like Christ. Be like Christ. Michael Jordan had a huge campaign, sold a lot of shoes. Be like Mike. (laughs) If I could sell shoes that said be like Christ, that'd be great. But I've got a campaign right here. I've I've got an apostle who tells us, imitate God. Be like Christ. Because as we are attempting, working, through transforming grace to be like Christ, we do the very things that Paul talks about in chapter 1 that we glorify God to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace. Our imitation of Christ is to the praise of His glorious grace and it is to the good of grace church. That we fight for unity. We work for unity. Transforming grace has done just that. It has transformed every person in this room who has put, who's, who's put their trust in Christ. You're not who you used to be. And you're not the same person who you used to be six weeks ago. Yeah, change comes slowly. Change comes slowly. I, especially in a husband and wife, you think change comes really slow. You just want things to move along faster. But thank God, Marilyn has been so patient for 34 years. I, I have changed over 34 years, but I still have the same weaknesses. There's still some areas that I just, it's just who I am. And, and God is at work. And there's transforming power, and there's transforming grace. But it takes time. Let's be a church that is patient with one another, is kind-hearted, tender-hearted, that we give grace to one another in our speech. We imitate Christ to one another. We are quick to forgive one another. We are quick to not be angry with one another. We are quick to be worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Lord willing, by God's transforming grace, 20 years from now, if some of us are not around, the older some of us, And you are. You feel as unified then as you are today. You have as much passion then as you do today. You have seen 20 years of transforming grace, and others have come behind. Others have come to know Christ, and they have experienced transforming grace because they have seen the transforming grace of Christ in you. That's my vision for this church. That's what's going to carry us forward. And that's why simple things like small group meetings and picnics together have such life to us. So let us see the gospel and let us imitate Christ.